there, and welcome to Second Look. I'm your host, Benjamin Green, and this is the show on the Outset Podcast Network, where we pause and re-examine things going on in politics and culture. And uh, really, the whole purpose of this show is to come at issues... um, not necessarily be the first one to comment, but try and have a reasonable comment. And um, avoid knee-jerk reactions and more respond with logic, with reason. It's okay to be emotional, but make sure that the response is good, (laughs) worthwhile, worth listening to and not just to try and get people riled up and sell books and get clicks. So, as I said, I'm Benjamin Green. You can find me on Twitter at BGreenAZ. It'd be really cool if you would tweet me your thoughts while you're listening to this episode, whenever that may be. Just if you something jumps out at you, tweet me at BGreenAZ. This show is brought to you by Octopod and their portable backup batteries that you can use to charge your electronic devices. I have an Ion 3 for my phone, and it's gotten me out of a jam more than once. It's pretty amazing. Go to octo-pod.com outset and use the coupon code OUTSET when you check out to get 50% off for a limited time. I just want to start out with a little bit of a disclaimer that if I'm talking slowly tonight, I do apologize. I'm a little sleepier than I normally am when I record the episode, but when you use a medium this personal, uh, it just happens sometimes. What can I say? Uh, (laughs) I I don't want to make excuses. I just want you to know what you're getting into. Uh, so bear with me, please. Uh, as I said a moment ago, this is the show where we re-examine politics and culture. And one of the things I have noticed going on, especially in politics, is just a growing sense of dissatisfaction and really disenfranchisement. And we talk about disenfranchised voters, and a lot of times that means like inner city voters or... Um, things like that. But really, I feel like pretty much everyone across the entire political spectrum is starting to feel disenfranchised, starting to feel like they don't have a voice, don't have um, power, don't have a say in what's going on in the, the business of the country. And this really, I think, is apparent in a new Gallup poll, which finds that just about one-fourth of Americans, one in four, are satisfied with the U.S. Only about 25%. So that means roughly three out of every four of us are not satisfied with the country we live in. That's pretty astounding to me because, you know, I believe this is a great country. I'm so happy I grew up here and not somewhere else. But 
only one out of every four of us are satisfied with what's going on, that means we're doing something wrong. A business with a 25% customer satisfaction rating isn't a very good business. A government with a 25% citizen satisfaction rating is an abysmal government. (laughs) Because, you know, in business, people get the choice to say, hop over to the business next door that maybe does things a little bit better. But with government, for a lot of people, you're stuck. You can't just renounce U.S. citizenship and become a citizen of Germany. You're kind of stuck here. And so it's imperative that government do a better job than that. So as I said on last week's episode... The key to solving any problem is admitting that there's a problem and finding the problem. Uh, You can't treat cancer until you've found that it exists. And I, I really feel like here in America, we're too busy patching problems. We're, we're trying to treat symptoms and not trying to figure out what the disease is. So on second look, I'm going to work really hard to see if I can get at what some of the diseases are that are facing this country and our civil discourse and see if there is any way that we can fix it. Or are we doomed? Is it Has the time come for the American experiment to end? I don't believe so. I believe there is a solution. We just have to find it. So I hope you'll stay tuned in the coming weeks as I look for it. But last week, I identified a few problems with uh, the GOP and the conservative movement. And I just wanted to point out, I got some listener feedback. And um, one person pointed out that Donald Trump, yes, he is a problem for the GOP, but he is a symptom. It's not that Donald Trump is the cause of a lot of the GOP's problems. Rather, he's reflecting it. I think he reflects that anti-intellectualism that I was talking about. I think that he um, also reflects the unwillingness to take things seriously and to sit down and talk things through. He just dominates and throws his perspective out there. I also think that one of the biggest problems is a lack of respect, and Donald Trump doesn't have respect for anyone other than himself and maybe his kids. And I think that's a problem, but as as the listener pointed out to me, that's a symptom, not a disease. And also, a friend of mine, um, when I talked about the big tent and how it's a problem, said it goes beyond the big tent. It goes beyond infighting within the GOP. The problem is that we have political parties at all. Political parties are not, ideally, would never have existed. And when George Washington was around, he sure hated the notion of political parties. So maybe the conversation we should be having is not how to fix the problems within the GOP, but how to move past political parties. So 
With that said, moving on, I've identified 10 key things that I think are also some symptoms, some maybe diseases, but problems with civil discourse and civil engagement in this country that I think will be productive in coming to a solution. Number one is that civic engagement doesn't even happen. Voting turnout is at a record low. Um, It gets lower all the time. We had a brief respite in 2008 when African-American turnout was very high. But as a whole, people are frustrated with the system. And one of the ways they take out that frustration is to not vote. I don't really understand this because voting is one of the only ways that we have to get involved in the system. There are a lot, but but voting is the obvious one. And I don't understand how not voting uh, can, can help anything. But beyond that, elected officials don't deal with the people they represent well at all. And uh, the the engagement that should exist between a government for, by, and of the people and the citizens thereof is just not there. And I think this one is a symptom. I think it is probably the most important out of everything on this list. And, and the biggest indicator that something is wrong. When far less than half of the people aren't actively engaged with the system, the system is broken. Number two is that in our discussions, emotions crowd out logic. Uh, the, the example that comes to mind most readily is in 2012 when the, the Democrats trotted out this war on women line against the GOP. It's preposterous. And I bet that every single Democratic person who has used that line knows that the Republicans did not have a war on women. It's ludicrous to suggest that a party that comprises close to half of the the general votes tallied would hate women and not just hate women but actually be waging a campaign to actively destroy the role of women in society this was an emotional thing it was in response to uh, largely Mitt Romney's comment about having binders full of women, which, strangely enough, was a good thing about women. He was saying there were lots of women who were qualified to lead in the workforce. But anyway, it, it was largely an emotional response. If you sit down and think about the logic, there are so many women who vote GOP. There are so many ways that the GOP is not waging a war on women, 
it's just preposterous. It, it was very much an emotional thing. It was not logical in the slightest. And that also relates to number three on the list, which is that yelling drowns out discussion. There are real conversations to be had about uh, women's issues. You know, I, I have seen economic evidence that there is no wage gap between genders. But if there is such a thing, it needs to be talked about. And it needs to be talked about without one side screaming and yelling at the other side about a war on women. And then that other side screaming and yelling back about, well, you don't care about the facts. Yelling doesn't solve anything. If you have to raise your voice to make a point, unless someone's in danger and you're yelling stop or fire or gun or something, if if you have to raise your voice, I believe you've lost all purpose. And you don't change people's minds by yelling at them. And you don't understand and listen to people while you're yelling at them. That's impossible, really. And so if we're going to fix civil discourse in this country, we need to stop yelling and start discussing things. Number four. Preconceived notions leave no room for change. What do I mean by that? Well, Uh, The example that comes to mind here is President Obama. I am sick and tired of conservatives who hate everything President Obama does just because he is President Obama. I do not think that Obama has been a good president. I think he's been a disaster on the economy, a disaster on foreign policy, a disaster on race relations. The list goes on and on. But I am not predisposed to hate everything the man says because of who he is, because of what he's done. Every time I see President Obama come to the microphone, I listen in hope that he'll be coming there saying he's changed his mind on something. Or he'll be coming to say, instead of uh, complaining about congressional Republicans, this is my three-point plan of how I intend to work with them in the rest of my presidency. I, I like to give politicians the benefit of the doubt. Believe it or not, I think this is a good thing. <laughs> and... I believe that most politicians go to Washington wanting to have a positive impact on their community and also on the nation as a whole. A lot of people get corrupted once they get to Washington, and this is a fact, indisputable fact. But we can't let our preconceived notions about politicians or people on the other side of the political spectrum of us get in the way of realizing that they are real people, that their opinions can change, that that they don't necessarily agree with everyone else who has the same letter after their name, R or D. They, they don't necessarily agree with all those other people. We have to remember... 
especially as conservatives, we talk a lot about sovereignty of the individual. And we have to remember that politicians have that same right. They deserve to be listened to without your preconceived notion about what they're going to say getting in the way. And number five is somewhat related to that, and that's that anger and hate beat out joy and love. There is so much to be happy about in America. We're an incredibly prosperous nation. We're a free nation. We are a nation that uh, has brought more innovation to the world than any other group in history. We have nonprofits revolutionizing the world. And were it not for America and the way our government was set up on the ideals of freedom, this world would be a very different place. This is a fact that cannot be argued. And I... That, that joy is not something you hear about. Like I said at the beginning, one in four Americans satisfied with the U.S., three in four are dissatisfied. We, we need to start looking for the things that are good. And the reason this kind of fits in with the other one is anytime President Obama comes to the microphone, I look for something I can agree with him on. I don't look for things that I can rant about to my friends. We, we need to look for good things. Uh, Christine Jones was a gubernatorial candidate in Arizona in 2014, and I follow her on Twitter. And from time to time, she'll tweet something with the hashtag celebrate good. And I like it. It, it's, it emphasizes the need to focus on the positive things in life. And that's something that is so often lost in America. And we can love each other for Americans, (laughs) love each other for, you know, being Americans, that makes a little more sense, and sharing that common bond, and we can love each other as human beings, and we don't have to hate each other based on party identification, or our views on abortion, or gay marriage, or any other of the host of issues. If, If we get rid of the anger and start thinking about the good things, the happy things, and start loving each other instead of hating each other, it'll go a long way towards repairing civil discourse in this country. We'll get to the next five things on the list after just a minute. I want to mention again our awesome sponsor, Octopod. I am starting college again next week, and I... I'm so happy to have my Octopod going into this semester because I'm on campus a lot, and when I am, there's not always an outlet, and too often I find myself with a phone that is not fully charged, and I just hook it up to my Octopod and it charges right up. You can get yours, too, at octo-pod.com slash outset. And then if you have to spend a 12-hour day when you weren't expecting to, you'll still have enough charge to make it through. octo-pod.com slash outset. Use the coupon code OUTSET at checkout to get 50% off for a limited time. So, just to recap, 
The first five problems that I've found are that civic engagement doesn't happen. There's a disconnect between elected officials and the people they serve. Two, emotions crowd out logic. Three, yelling drowns out discussion. Four, preconceived notions leave no room for change. Five, anger and hate beat joy and love. And I have five more for you here. Number six, fear takes the place of reason. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Republicans talk about Democrats. They just want to take all your guns. Anytime you hear a Democrat talk about gun control, you should remind them that Hitler took away people's guns. Yes, Hitler took away people's guns. Yes, Democrats want to take people's guns away. No, this is not in any way a meaningful comparison. And coming from the other side, I, I've i heard a lot of Democrats say things like, uh, Republicans want to ban birth control. And yes, Republicans are, for the most part, against abortion. And a lot of people who are against abortion, especially people from certain religious groups, might also be against the use of birth control. But that doesn't mean that all Republicans want to get rid of birth control. It's all too easy to craft a message that's going to make your side fear the enemy. To <laughs> There, I slipped up and said it myself. You treat the opposition as your enemy. When in reality, we're both Americans. We're both on the same side. We want what's best for the 300 million people in this country. And, and we have to remember... That we're not in a war. We don't need to fear the other side. We just need to talk to them. And have reasonable discussion. And, you know, instead of pointing out that Nazis took away people's guns, Republicans should focus on the fact that countries with higher gun ownership have lower homicide rates and cities that have higher gun ownership have lower homicide rates that Chicago and Washington DC are 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 the two biggest cities for gun crimes and they have some of the strictest gun laws and democrats instead of trying to talk about how Republicans want to ban birth control they should actually argue the case and why they're in favor of abortion. I don't see much of a case there, but, you know, I'm willing to listen to them. I'm willing to hear them argue it for the sake of democracy, if you will, <laughs> listening to each other and reasoning with each other. And this one kind of leads into number seven, which is that talking points and buzzwords obfuscate truth. We talk about, uh, 
you know, those those are two really good examples. I'm trying to think of another one where just the usual talking points that are used really don't allow for rational discussion and sharing of the facts. Oh, here's a good one. Israel. Israel is a nation. It's actually, I might add, a secular nation. And a lot of times in Republican politics specifically, you cannot criticize Israel without being labeled an anti-Semite. Israel has flaws and virtues like any other nation, and having a discussion about those flaws and virtues is a very productive thing to do, and there are a lot of facts that can be shared, but instead we have to always make sure that we're couching our responses in, I will stand with Israel against Islamic terrorism, and that's, it it just is a distraction, it obscures the truth and the facts and reasonable, rational discussion, and it ultimately hurts civil discourse to constantly be speaking in terms of talking points and buzzwords. Number eight. This one is kind of, I I feel like it's a little bit of a recap But at the same time, it's different. And it's just that politics are inaccessible. And there are a lot of facets to it. One of which is that the political class doesn't explain things well. I bet you the average American has no idea what a FICA tax is. And yet, we hear about FICA taxes all the time. And... There's so much political doublespeak. Marco Rubio... Uh, not too long ago, said that it's not nation-building, it's assisting in the building of nations. Well, what does that even mean? I, I understand that there's a little bit of a distinction he's trying to draw, but again, to the average American, this is just inaccessible. It It's, it's far less pressing, first of all, than things like work and kids and... Uh, It doesn't do anything to draw people in to speak in terms that people can't understand. I've said many times that our congressional bills should be written in everyday language, not legalese. And I understand that they do it to try and uh, just be consistent because so much of the legal world operates in legalese. That's why it's called legalese. But Congress is supposed to be the people's house, and so should it not be representative of the people before it tries to be representative of the legal class? And also, many people aren't aware of any way other than voting that they can access their elected officials. And voting is not very personal. You go to this place, and you stand in a little booth, and you check a box, or worse, you you vote from home. You check little boxes and then put it in the mail, and you don't actually see anybody. You don't even see the poll workers. And this inaccessibility really, really hurts that 
that first thing that civic engagement doesn't even happen. We see very few people voting, very few people active in the political process. And it has to do with all of these other things. Uh, the, the political class, I, I have no reservations about using that term political class. And I would, to an extent, lump myself into it. We, we forget that it's a big bubble. And, you know, presidential politics are starting to play out in this election season. But honestly, the bubble is still a bubble. And most people on Twitter and Facebook aren't really going to know the difference between Donald Trump's immigration plan and Ted Cruz's immigration plan and Rick Perry's immigration plan and Bernie Sanders' immigration plan. And even those who do know that there is a difference aren't going to care so much about what it is. I, I'm rambling a little bit here, but the the political class is so separate from average Americans that we get... I don't know if self-important is the right word, but but we don't explain things and we don't talk about things in the way that everyday Americans could relate to. And this hurts the entire political process. Number nine is ignorance. I just saw... A new poll said that one-third of Americans, and I'm sorry, I don't know the sourcing on this poll at all. I just saw it on Twitter. One-third of Americans think that the Constitution grants a lot of power to all three branches of government, but ultimately the president has the final say. That's wrong. I'm, I'm, and, and it's just a, a symptom of ignorance. And... Ignorance in what the constitutional system is, ignorance in how the political process works. I <laughs> separate but equal branches of government do not equal <laughs> the president having the final say. And this is just one of many examples of how the American people ultimately are ignorant. And it's amazing that one of the most educated countries in the world has produced at least two, if not three generations of just ignorant people who are all too willing to just hear things that the political class says and not research them for themselves, not get them explained properly, as I was saying a moment ago, and just kind of blunder through political life. It's very strange. I bet you most Americans think of politics as very important, maybe less so among millennials who are very apathetic toward the system, but most people probably understand the gravity of the things that go on in Washington, D.C., and yet are completely ignorant about why Congress works the way it does, why sometimes so little seems to get done, and until we solve this problem of ignorance, well... We're stuck, I think. And number 10, 
And this one rivals number one. These were in no particular order, by the way. This one rivals number one, I think, for being the most important, is that there is no trust in our system from any direction. The people do not trust elected officials. Elected officials most certainly don't trust the people. People don't trust each other. Elected officials don't trust each other. And there's just no trust coming from anywhere. And this has all sorts of ramifications in policy. Uh, you know, the discussions of the Fourth Amendment. Do elected officials trust Americans to not blow up each other? Well, some people yes, some people no. Do you trust your neighbor enough to sit down and have a conversation with them about politics? I know I really don't. Some of my neighbors are kind of weird. And they probably have weird ideas about politics. <laughs> and, and I don't really trust them enough to have thought-out, informed opinions. Is that elitist of me? Maybe. Is it wrong of me? Definitely. Elected officials don't trust each other enough to negotiate and to talk through things. There are exceptions to every rule, but for the most part, collaboration between parties is like at an all-time low. We're very polarized. This is a very polarized Congress. And, and the trust isn't there, you know? You, you can't trust the person in the other party to work with you without stabbing you in the back or trying to get something out of it. it it's just sad. And it's definitely one of the most important problems in our civil discourse. So that's my list of ten. It, there are many more problems, I'm sure, but I feel like this is a good start to to start looking at remedies and to see what we can do to fix civil discourse, get people talking to each other again, what we can do to fix civic engagement, get uh, representatives and citizens happy with each other again, and... I hope you'll stay with me in the coming weeks as we continue to explore this issue. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in today. Uh, if you would, please tweet me feedback on the show. You can find me on Twitter at BGreenAZ. Uh, as you can find this show on iTunes, where I'd love it if you'd rate it five stars and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. You can also find it on OutsetMagazine.com or at OutsetMagazine on Twitter. The editor of Outset Magazine, another host of a podcast on the Outset Network, is Stephen Perkins at Stephen with a PH underscore Perkins. Make sure you check out his show and the Matt Dallas show on Outset later this week. I'm really optimistic for the future in this country, and I hope that you are too. Thanks for tuning in this week, and we'll see you next time.